Radian was, um, it started as a, it's our solution inside OPT. Sean and I started thinking like we need to design and develop just this one piece. Let's just solve this one problem. If somebody buys a dovetail, they should be done. Just whatever they put it on, it's going to work. It's fine. A universal dovetail. The telescopes will be the next big thing that people see. Um, and we have telescopes on both sides. So we have professional telescopes, literally all the way up to 24 inch uh, reflectors. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. In today's episode, Dustin talks with us about Radian Telescopes, a spinoff company from OPT, which was started to solve one particular problem and then blossomed into a much bigger company with lots of exciting products coming out of it. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Space Junk, a weekly podcast dedicated to the amazing hobby of amateur astronomy. Each week, we'll bring you interesting and fun discussions with an eye towards providing you with the latest information and advice on the tools, gadgets, software, and techniques for maximizing your enjoyment of the night sky. Your hosts are Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space and Dustin Gibson from OPT Telescopes, a world leader in telescopes and accessories. All right. Wow, Dustin. Uh, <laughs> another episode after an unintendedly long hiatus. How are you doing, man? You know, it's funny because it, it's a break, right? It's been a, th what, a two two weeks or three week break? I think it's from three. I think it's closer to three. Yeah, it was when I posted. <laughs> we posted. The last one was with Frazier. And in that three weeks, neither of us got a chance to take a break. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I jumped in with this symposium I was working on, and it just finished last Friday. And I was like, uh, yeah, it was like no work, no rest for the weary there. Yeah, so, no, yeah. it's good. It's good, though. Life is good, man. I know that you've been super busy. I want to hear. So what what was this uh, symposium that you were doing? So the American Astronautical Society held their Glenn Symposium. They usually, this is their second one, and they usually hold it in Cleveland uh, uh, in July, middle of July, usually. And um because of the pandemic, they went virtual this time and they asked me to help them because they knew of my streaming expertise and they wanted in my software and stuff that I have, they wanted to know if I could help them set this up and, and to help sort of direct it and produce it, uh, for them. And it's a, it's a, it's geared toward companies, aerospace companies like, uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne, SpaceX, uh, Rock, uh, Lockheed, all of these companies that uh, are involved in the space program, uh, to talk about the latest advances, the different kinds of propulsion they're going to be using and, and, you know, the latest status of various missions. And there was even one on space policy. That was the most boring because when you've got politicians in a room talking, it can get kind of tedious, but, um, it was really interesting because we had the uh, Jim Bridenstine, the NASA, the NASA administrator was there, gave us an update on the Mars, uh, 2020, I'm sorry, the, uh, moon, uh, going back to the moon, uh, in 2024 effort. And that was with Artemis and gave us an update on the, the, you know, whether we're going to make it in 2024 or not. And then we had other various national officials and CEOs, of all sorts, uh, telling us what they're working on. And it's, it's really cool. I mean, but the stakes were kind of high because these virtual meetings is, you know, you've got all these important people from all over the country joining in. They've only got like, this is my time. I'm going to give you an hour. That's all I've got. And everything has to work. And so we are sitting here and I've got my little laptop here with Wirecast running. And if anything screws up with my ISP, 
the whole symposium dies. <laughs> so yeah. there was a lot of pressure and stress to make sure I had fail saves and backups in case the, you know, the internet failed, which it does routinely here. Um, so it was really highly, highly stressful for me because I was the single point of failure. If anything had gone wrong, it would have been on me and the whole symposium would have fallen down. So, um, I'm glad it's over. It went really well. Everything went without it. We had a few technical glitches, uh, here and there that were when we, on the first day, but it was three days long and it, uh, it went off really well. And we learned a lot about, uh, coming, what, what's coming up with space. And I'm actually excited about going to the moon. I think we're actually going to pull it off. Uh, I think NASA is going to get it done in, in at least through Artemis missions one through three. Artemis four is going to be the first one where we land that on the moon. That one will probably be uh, delayed, I think. But that was my project, and it was it was a period of about a week or so of intense work. Yeah, I bet. Congratulations on it going off smoothly. I know that had to be a, a very stressful time to set up. You know, I actually like I have this this idea it's like think about think about how how many parents have sat there with their kids with their face like down in the cell phone or the ipad or on video games and trying to convince them like oh you gotta get outside you gotta go play with friends you gotta have face-to-face interactions and now the world has changed instantly to reward the people that had their face down in cell phones (laughs) and learning ipads and learning technology (laughs) embracing all that stuff like twitch streamers are better now at communicating than anyone because they're more available. Yeah. Yeah. They're more available. They've already got the infrastructure built. They've got all of this stuff set up and it's like just overnight the world changed. Without intending to, I've got a set of marketable skills here that people are willing to pay for. I had no idea. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy, man. The revenge of the streamers, man. We're coming to get you all now in this pandemic era. (laughs) Yeah. The thing that would have been considered before people lacking the communication skills because they're just doing it over a headset playing a video game or whatever. And now it's like, man, these are the people that have the know-how to guide the rest of the world through this mess. You would not believe how many of these real high-ranking, highly technical, highly educated people would, would try and connect to just a Zoom meeting. I mean, we're, we were using Zoom webinar. That's what we were using. Couldn't do it, right? It's like these people are just, you know, the, some of the smartest in the world. They're running our space program. They are literally rocket scientists and you know it's like i'm sorry but i can't hear you you got to unmute your mic <laughs> <laughs> and they're just talking away la, 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 la. <laughs> yeah yeah oh i know man i know i feel like i feel like my twitch stream half of the people that watch me stream on twitch they're just they're just too nice to go away because all, <laughs> all they're doing i know I, is, I have people like that too they're watching me troubleshoot you know, the, the OBS settings and everything else for like, <laughs> they don't 30. want to offend you. And go, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'm really bored with this. <laughs> I, I leave Dustin will notice. And then I it's know. like, I don't want to, I don't want to upset him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I know. So I'm definitely one of those people, man, but you know, <laughs> Hey, I'm trying here. I'm trying, I'm trying to keep it all going and moving all the time. Yeah, we can see you, Dustin, but we can't hear you. Well, okay, let me figure it out. <laughs> I, I did an entire Twitch stream trying to get my audio on. It was one of the first ones I did and did the entire stream while everybody was just silent. <laughs> well, remember that? We were trying to do one together and we couldn't get my audio on. So as I was, I know. You know, we're just sitting here going, well, I guess we'll do it later. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, so it's been a while and it's just the two of us here today. So what I think we're going to do 
is uh, make make this a, a a gear episode. You know, we'll talk sure. about some 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 really cool gear that's coming out. And you have so many things going on at OPT, but one of the things you've got going on is that I'm really interested in is the Radian component of OPT. I don't know if a lot of people know about what you're doing with that. So I thought we'd start by introducing that to people. What is Radian and what are some of the things that you're that you're developing there? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Radian was um, it started as a it's our solution inside OPT. You know, we had uh, we had a an astrophysicist that was with us. He actually started Space Fab, Sean League. We've yep. had him here on the podcast. I mean, you you can tell when you're talking to Sean that you're talking to one of these people that's just on a different level. Like if anybody's going to figure out like, you know, <laughs> like everything in the universe instantly, like they're just going to be like, oh yeah, I get it now. Like Sean's, yeah, oh, he's pretty, yeah, I figured it out. Yeah. Like Sean has a good chance of being that guy, you know, and he was there every day. Um, and we started thinking about all the problems and we realized we were complaining a lot. We were just complaining about things that people would get frustrated because somebody would like buy a system, buy a telescope, and buy all of the components necessary, the rings, the dovetail, the, you know, the mount, the camera, everything, all the adapters. And then they would get excited. And then so they'd be just like us. They'd be like, all right, I want another lens. I want a different telescope. But then we'd realize, oh, man, we didn't. You can't predict what's going to be next. So the dovetail we sold them, $100 part, now doesn't work. And so we have to sell them another dovetail. And we have to go back to that customer and say, well, you switched parts. And so now you need this other piece. And that little problem started a company. And we, uh, Sean and I started thinking like we need to design and develop just this one piece. Let's just solve this one problem. If somebody buys a dovetail, they should be done. Just whatever they put it on, it's going to work. It's fine. A universal dovetail. So Sean went to work, man, and started calculating with all of the rings. And that was one of the benefits of having the warehouse attached to the buildings. We could literally go grab every set of rings from every company and just mathematically design this one product that was going to fit everything. Right. And so Sean went to work on that. Some of the rest of the team got involved and we came out with the Radian Universal Dovetail, you know, months and months later. It took a long time, but we came out with the Universal Dovetail and it has been the solution. It fits everything out there with the exception of Takahashi clamshells. And that's a that's a really big deal to be able to buy it and know that you're done with it. Right. Um, and so even though it's not like the sexiest of parts to talk about, I mean, we're talking about a plate of steel for us. It was a really An expensive big win. plate of steel usually. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But it was a really big win because we felt like, all right, we found a problem. We solved the problem by just looking at it differently. And so then one of the staff who, you know, I, I think sometimes you can educate yourself away from success, you know, by not be feeling you're not you don't feel as creative and this isn't always the case, but I think at times it can limit your creativity because you assume things just won't work. You know, they're like, Oh, well, come on. I like, I've thought through that. I know all the problems with that. I, there's no way that would ever work. And this, this guy didn't have that. He just thought, Hey, this would be really cool if, and he said, what if there was one filter that would just shoot all of the narrow band all at once and eliminate light pollution? Because then you're shooting all the colors, but like he didn't like that when you shoot narrowband, you would only see it in black and white, right? He's like, I like shooting color cameras, but I want to shoot narrowband. And so immediately I started to get in the way of it 
because I was like, come on, man. Like, think about color cameras and the limiting factors they already have. They have this Bayer matrix. And you know this. This is why scientists don't mm -hmm. shoot color, right? Like, you got this Bayer matrix with RGB filters set across a pattern. You're giving up so much light to that Bayer. You know, only one quarter of your pixels can even detect red light. So you think about, like, your hydrogen. No matter how sensitive the sensor is, only 25% of them if you have perfect quantum efficiency, can even accept the red light. And, and so it's like, oh, so now you want to take another filter that's going to be 99% rejection and throw it on top of that? Like, no, it's not going to work. There's no sensor in the world that it's going to work with. And he's like, but damn, it would be really cool if we did it. You know? And, <laughs> and then our pro services team was like, I don't know, man. He's like, maybe... Maybe we should just try it because think about it. We've got a lot of things here where we're thinking about older technologies. We're thinking about a lot of this CCD stuff from back in the day where we were used to, you know, 40% quantum efficiency and sensitivities were extremely low and all of this stuff. And it's like, what if, what if these new CMOS chips being 70 plus percent easily, 80 plus percent QE, uh, hypersensitive back illuminated. You've got all these advantages. Now the chips are just so good. What if we made this thing is like, it would solve the problem. We could literally probably shoot this from Times square. And so we thought, yeah, it is a really big if, but if this, if works, then we solved the problem. We really solved a huge problem, which is I want to shoot from my backyard. Right. And, um, so we went to work on it, man. And that became the triad filter. It took about six months to get the first working filter. And, uh, we thought we just went down a money pit that was going to be devastating. <laughs> so you, you spent quite a bit of money on the triad development. We did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there is no such thing as free development. Right. You know, in anything, uh, it's costing someone no matter what it is. And so, um, yeah. And then time of course is also very expensive. And so it, uh, you know, it was just one of those things where we're like, but you know, maybe, maybe, but we knew we didn't want to do what like the other companies had done where it's like, well, let's call this a light pollution filter, but it's 18 nanometers wide and it's going to let in, you know, just less light pollution. But we, we thought it really has to either be a true narrow band filter or don't do it. So the hydrogen pass had to be three nanometers for the first one. And then we started developing the triad ultra, which was four nanometers across hydrogen, sulfur, oxygen, and hydrogen beta. And so if that worked, you could shoot a color camera and see a narrowband image pop up on screen in real time. And uh, man, it, it worked. We couldn't believe it, but you've seen the images. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, it's an amazing technological achievement. When you were first starting out, though, did anybody look through any kind of literature, do any research to see if anything like that had maybe been done professionally with professional filters or, or was it, was there anything that had existed you could have drawn on to start that was a foundation? Was we contacted, like we contacted over 20 filter manufacturers to try to get this thing made. Yeah. And everybody either said it can't be done or, um, you know, it's beyond what it can't be done yet. I guess is what the other ones were saying. You know, the uh -huh. only one that could was a manufacturer that took these kind of projects on all the time for NASA. But no, there had been nothing like this ever done before. Wow, that's great. And, Even and from them, course, 
And that's what I think what intrigued them is to them it felt like a challenge because they were at the top, you know, they were already at the very top of the filter world and they were like, ah, if anybody can do it, we can do it. Let's see if we can do it. Yeah. You, know? yeah, you get vendors like that sometimes. I remember a long time ago, we were looking for a camera for uh, uh, a solar observatory, and nobody made the Mercad Telluride detectors that we needed. Uh, but but Rockwell said, you know what? We'd like to build this it, as a challenge. And so they did, and we had the camera. Uh, there's vendors like that, you know, that, that, mm-hmm. that like look at this and go, yeah, man, we'd like to have this business. We don't know if it's going to work either, <laughs> but we'd like to try. Yeah. That's really well, cool. And we knew, okay, well, if we can get it done, it's going to be really expensive, which is scary because the next closest filter to that is a third of the price, a third. But that's because manufacturing filters to these tolerances are, it's, it's, it's an expensive process. It's not like, oh, well, we can do it for the same price as a cheaper filter and then sell it for this. It's like, no, this is extremely expensive to do because the filters themselves are very fragile and you have to get them perfect or they won't work. So every filter that comes out has to be perfect. And, um, you know, we, we didn't want to bend on any of the numbers we wanted. We wanted over, you know, 95% transmission and all of this stuff. And at the uh, wavelengths you're interested in at the wavelengths. Uh, yeah, and right. we wanted those to be within tolerances of 0.5 nanometers. I mean, we're talking about perfection. <laughs> and, yeah. and so when we finally got this thing done, we, you know, we took it to Times Square. You were there. We've mm-hmm. shot it all over the, I mean, in every major city we have, uh, pictures taken in San Diego, Los Angeles, all in, uh, you know, uh, what is it? Las Vegas, everywhere, everywhere. And, uh, you can't tell that this wasn't that they weren't shot in shot in uh, uh, dark skies, man. It's just like, I mean, it really is like shooting narrowband from your backyard with a color camera because it is that. It is exactly that. And you know, we had every reason to say this won't work, but just somebody with a hope and an idea and you know the creative you know, passion to just go for it. It's like, well, maybe, maybe so, man. I mean, their idea was good and it proved to be, now it's one of the best selling filters in the world. Are there any other vendors that maybe have come along after this one that would be able to do it now? Or is it still pretty much a one shop operation as far as who can do it? And is it proprietary, the technology to do it? Uh, yes. So we, we own, the triad filter and nobody else. So there's two layers of protection because a lot of this stuff, you can own it all day long. It's still going to be replicated overseas and there's not much any companies can do about it without spending more. Yeah. That's the world we live in. Exactly. But the one thing that really protects us, because you've seen a lot of companies try to, to take that idea and run with it, which Mm -hmm. ultimately is like, okay, well, it's still great. At least this is something that is serving the community. Now, at least this exists. Because if we can shoot this in Times Square, your backyard is not too bright. So, you know, we can give more imaging time to people that now you don't have to travel three hours to shoot a mission nebula. And there's that's the asterisk on this, is it only works with the mission nebulae. Mm-hmm. It's not going to work if you're trying to shoot galaxies unless it's Andromeda Galaxy. And it's not going to work, you know, if you're tr- trying to shoot reflection nebulae. But if you're going after the big colorful ones that everyone knows, the Horsehead, Orion Nebula, you know, Rosette, all of the ones that everyone knows, you can shoot this thing from anywhere. You know, you can shoot it on a full moon night and it still works. So, um, yeah, man. I mean, people have tried to replicate it and sell like knockoff versions, but it's funny. Like they're running into the same issue that we did initially, which is it just can't be done 
anywhere else. And so if you look at the numbers on the filters that are competitors to them, you know, these filters will be like a third of the price, but it's still just the old traditional light pollution style filter where it's like, all right, we have three bands, but they're 14 nanometers each. Um, you know, we have, so it's like, okay, cool. Like you have a light pollution filter, which is still way better than nothing. And they work really well, but it's not a triad filter or anything even remotely close. Yeah. So I, I get the excitement. I get the, the appeal of, you know, you've got this idea and you start with this, wouldn't it be great if kind of thing, and you go through some initial hurdles and eventually you keep at it. You th- you spend some money at work, you, you iterate, you design, you, you innovate. And finally you've got a filter that does what you said. What if could we, you know, and you've answered the question. I'm curious a little bit about the business side of it. I mean, how do you determine as a businessman that first of all, yes, this is a cool problem to solve, but it's never going to be profitable. I'm not saying this was true here. I'm asking you how, if it is and and how you got there, because, um, how do you gauge the demand of something like this and then balance it with what it's going to cost you to develop and then ultimately decide if it's going to be a profitable venture or not? How, how does that process go? Sure. Well, all of these projects start out with a plan, right? With any anything in business. I mean, you've seen OPT, you've seen how we operate. Mm-hmm. Like, it's not just throw stuff up in the air and hope See what that sticks. All, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's not like that, man. There's always a plan, and so you know, we we started looking at this and said, well, how if it works. You know, what do we have to do to make sure that this is sustainable and it's something that we can provide the community moving forward? And so we knew all of those numbers. We knew everything we had to do. And that's how everything happens. That's how the marketing team gets involved. That's how production schedules get made. That's how all of it happens. And everything is calculated. And then once we know, like, here's what we have to do, we just push like hell to make that happen because we want this to exist in the hobby. And what we found is that. You know, especially with the Radiant products, a lot of, I can't tell you how many times I've heard, especially with things like the tripod we did, or even the dovetail, you know, people that own other businesses, a lot of my friends are just like, man, why don't you charge two or three times as much? It's like, if people can't get it anywhere, you can charge whatever you want, right? But but the thing is, is like, you start to abandon your philosophy at that point. And I think that's never a good idea in any business venture to abandon the philosophy that brought it on in the first place. Which is, if we make this stuff accessible, we are already the telescope authority globally. We sell everything, not just Radian. And so we really need to provide equal representation to all of the brands. That is our job, is to be the the company that's non-biased and, and can really, people can trust. If we lose that trust, we've lost everything. Right. And so I think what we have to do is not try to take advantage of those situations, but instead always be seen because it's legitimate as driving the hobby forward. And if we do that, we're not going to be the place they buy the filter. We're going to be the place they buy the filter and the wheel and the camera and the telescope and, you know, the power supply and everything else. So we don't need to go all in on let's make a killing on this item. We need to go all in on let's drive the hobby forward and get more people doing this hobby and just maintain the level of service that we're already, you know, holding ourselves to. And if we do that, we can serve this community. And I really think it's not about how many people you sell. It's about how many people you help and, 
honestly, if you can be the company that is just driving that forward all the time, you you never have a thing to worry about. Yeah. So I guess I guess I think I see what you're saying. So in, in, while the radiant filter may be profitable or not, it may you may make some percentage of markup on it. The, no, the, the radiant filter is profitable. Part of, yeah. Well, okay. Okay. Fine. Yeah. yeah. But, but but it's also part of a much larger package of things that you offer. And I want to push back just a little bit on something you said, though. You said you got to be non-biased. And how do you do that if you want to be trusted? Because not all products are equally good. There's some crap out there. So there is sort of a bias to what you're doing, isn't there? I mean, you guys know that some things are better than other. Some telescopes are better than sure. other telescopes. And some mm-hmm. some mounts are better than other mounts. So you've got to, to be the authority, you've got to be able to say, well, this one's junk. But this one, this one over here is worth the money, right? So... I mean, you don't want to just give everybody equal attention, right? So how do you balance that? Um, It is not easy to be one of the brands that we represent. We we represent a lot of brands, but I can tell you it's because those brands meet a certain standard. And there are brands that go onto and off of our website. I mean, actually, there's a relatively large brand that's coming off of our website, you know, probably by the time this is released, that uh, we just, we don't represent if it's not so the idea is you don't have to be non-biased against everything but the way to show that bias is by only selling things and only representing things that you're seeing that are truly serving the customer base so at the point that we're putting on our website why would it be there if we're going to say this is a bad product don't buy this it's our job to just don't represent it say that this is not good for the community we're not going to sell that so if there's something for sale or represented on OPT's website, then it's by definition, you know, worth looking at because you're making a statement that we're supporting this and we're standing behind it. So it's good. Right? You will see so. that there are brands we carry. You will see there are brands we don't. And even within those brands, you will see there are products we carry and products we don't. And we use data. If we have a lot of products that, or if we have, let's say there's one product with it, let's say it's a great brand, but there's this one product that we get a lot of complaints about, people aren't satisfied, or they're just not sure. thrilled with what they yeah. get, we pull that product and we won't sell that product. And if we have that product, we'll get with the manufacturer and every one of them will go back to the manufacturer and we'll just say, we're not going to, we're not going to push something because, you know, a lot of the old model is, well, just if it sucks and everybody hates it, clearance it out and then blow them out and be done with it. But it's like, okay, so what you're saying then is the customer that ends up with that is now stuck with this product that you know. <laughs> That's right. You yeah. don't even want to sell. And you're going to clearance it out in quotes, right? And it's like, well, what about that customer that's now stuck with it? You Do you want that customer's business? Because it doesn't sound like it, you know? But it's just like, no, no. Instead, just get it back. And look, it's not the customer's fault the, the manufacturer made it. If you make a garbage product, it's coming back to you. You know, and sorry, don't make the garbage product. Yeah, this this ain't flying on our website. You're gonna yeah. have to go. <laughs> yeah, do some right, QC. It, go yeah. check it. Yeah. Well, okay. So with the triad, then you did all this in, initial research with uh, not just getting the thing to work, and then uh, a lot of trial and error. You finally it finally met your standards. Uh, you and then you did this. Your, your your business philosophy, of course, you know, making sure you're 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 making everything accessible and at the same time being profitable. Are there any things that you've said no to? Um, are there any things that Radian or mm-hmm. by and by extension OPT has wanted to build but just said, no man, this ain't gonna work? We have started more projects that have failed than succeeded. So um, and when I say that, these aren't large projects, so it's not like 
you know, we, Jenny and I both have, have a fail fast mentality. If something's going to fail, make, make sure it fails fast. Don't let it, don't let it waste a bunch of your time and energy. And so like I developed a focuser and man, I, I poured my heart into this thing. <laughs> and uh, I was like, you know, I'm all charged up, man. I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to save the world, right? I'm going to save the world with this what? focuser. <laughs> the world saver <laughs> yeah yeah this focus is about to save the world man it, everybody even if you're not in the hobby you are just gonna you're gonna be amazed you're gonna have this focuser this and yeah. be happier it's going on the mantle you know and it's going what it's is that man a, oh that's my focuser for saving the world man a picture of it on the fridge but it's like i poured my heart into developing this focuser man and the idea was uh this focuser is going to solve every problem because it's going to go on anything and it is going to automatically temperature compensate for uh, fluctuations from the telescope. And it's going to not have to take power, um, but be powered by USB. And if, uh, if at all possible, right, it was just going to be powered by this one plug and be run like as just a solution. Uh, wow. that, you know, like the one solution. And then the idea was like, I can get this to the price of all the other focusers out there and it's going to work and it's going to be a uh, better resolution than anything else. And I started working on this thing and immediately I had to give up on the powered by USB things. It's just not enough. And then I got the temperature compensating thing working, but it just looked ugly as hell. It was like, um, I just, no matter how we tried the cost kept going up and up and up on this box for a temperature compensation. And it just looked horrendous. It was so ugly and jagged and just nasty. So it's like, well, we got to solve that problem because I'm not releasing anything that doesn't look great. It's one thing. If you look at the radiant products, I mean, they look like, uh, they look like products you would want to own, you know, yeah. like we take great pride, even the, well, Apple the, taught everybody that didn't they, you know, yeah, they, they, that, yeah. Pro, that product design is huge. It's everything, man. Yeah. It's everything. And so even our radiant dovetail, if you look at it, man, it's like it, everything about it is so sleek. There's so much attention to detail. And when we got done with this focuser, I brought it to work. It was really smooth. Like everything was great, but I compared it to the feather touch focuser that they make in Indiana. And I compared it to an Optech focuser that they make in Michigan. And I just looked at what they're offering. I looked at what we're offering. Uh, the price point that we were offering would have been a little bit less, but I feel like everything they did, they did extremely well. And looking at ours, I felt like, okay, so like this could be a competitive focuser in this space, but Starlight Instruments with the Feather Touch Focuser has already done such a damn good job on this focuser that I feel like we're not changing anything. We're not releasing a product that's like going to be just 10 years ahead of everything else. I'm just releasing something that's competitive in the exact same space of what they're already doing. And that defeats the purpose. That's not what Radiant's about. So we never released it. I have it sitting here in my house right now. It's sitting here and I've All even jagged. showed it. I've showed it on the Twitch stream and like it looks cool but it's not yeah it's not it's never going to get released you know and so i've got a lot of products like that that i've just done but well, it I sounds feel like, like it didn't start it didn't solve it you were solving something that's already been solved sound like exactly. sounds like yeah there are already solutions out there that companies have done a really good job on and radian's intention isn't to come out and be like we're gonna put this out there just to join the mix of everything out there. It's like, look, if companies have done innovation for that, I want them to be rewarded. They've done great things. Um, we're not trying to just fill the space and make it more saturated. We want to solve problems. 
And if we're not doing that, then what's the point of releasing this? So Radiance just released a tripod. You just mentioned it. Um, yeah. tell, talk to us a little bit about that. What's, uh, what's special about this tripod? Uh, right now it's probably my favorite. Like I love the triad filter, triad filter is a game changer, but the tripod is, uh, man, everybody that calls me, um, I mean, all of my the friends, like even Travis Burke, we went out and shot, he just shot the Comet, uh, with this tripod and he's starting to use some radium products. He's super proud of the brand, you know? Um, but this tripod, everybody, so I've been sending it to our affiliates and every time I get a message, people are just like, dude dot 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 and then there's a picture of this tripod and it's just like i can't believe this thing is so beast you know because it's like it's this very lightweight full carbon fiber tripod that we modeled after after a brand that i really respect called gitso oh yeah um, they're great yeah but they're expensive so to get a, a, a tripod with the same or less features as this one in gitso you would have like i said it's the one that they have has less features and doesn't, it's not as tall or have the capacity and it's $1,200. Yeah. Right. And this one, uh, we put all of those features into, and then we put astronomy features like the fact that you can change the, so underneath there's a counterweight hook underneath the tripod. So they have quick release plates, just like our dovetail model and the other stuff. But these quick release plates, you can buy three or four or five of them and just leave them on everything. So I have one on my Hobo mount. I have one on my track, my Skywatcher uh, Star Adventurer tracking mount for Milky Way. And I have one on a standard ball head if I want to just take it to the zoo, right? Or do portraits or something. I have one on everything. And you literally just push a button on the bottom of it, pull one off, click another one in, and it has a clutch. You just lock that clutch down and you're done. Right. And so like everything makes it so easy. But then if you're using it for astronomy, we thought, well, you might want to counterweight the bottom. But what if you want to counterweight the back? Because now on your front leg, you've got all these counterweights hanging down. So what if you want to counterweight the back? So it has like a three eighths opening with the hook to counterweight the back of the tripod to keep the center of gravity even. And, um, you know, then it was like, well, we've got that piece. But what about people having to use this at night? So we made the grips three times the size of normal leg extension grips so that you can find them in the dark. You know, the whole idea was like, I want to be able to use this thing with my eyes closed. And you can definitely do that. It's like, well, some people are in concrete. So we put vibration suppression, hardened rubber feet on it for people walking around on concrete. And then those come off and included in the bag is these huge, they look like golf cleats for when people are on grass or dirt and you just replace the feet on it. And then you can use it anywhere, you know, it comes with a carrying case. It comes with, um, the clutch that locks down the plate has a clutch built into the clutch so that you can lock it, pull it out, and then move that clutch underneath the tripod. So that if you have cables moving around as they swing around your telescope, you know, as you're imaging, the cables don't get snagged on even that one little piece, like literally everything, man, a bubble level, like every detail has been considered in this thing. And can I feel you, like that's, you need, can you do the bubble level in the dark? Now that would, that would be impressive. Uh, so the bubble level is, I don't, I don't know if it's glow in the dark, but it is that like fluorescent yellow. Um, <laughs> and, was uh, you, man. <laughs> yeah, no, it's pretty, it's pretty cool though. So it's actually, we put it on the top plate, but we extended those plates out so that even when your mount is on it, the bubble level is outside of the mounts. So you don't have to level and then put it on. If you forget, you just throw your mount on, you can still see the level at all times. 
So it's like every little detail, man. And I feel like that's, those are the products we release, not the ones that are like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so carbon fiber, how much, how much does it weigh? Uh, I think off the top of my head, let me see. I can tell you, I know it holds 50 pounds. Um, yeah, but I think that's, 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 I think it weighs strong. like four pounds, something like that. Oh, okay. Wow, yeah. It's, nice. it's, it's really light. It might be three. Um, but yeah, man, it's, it's incredible. And everybody, I haven't sent it to anybody yet that has said, uh, that they're not going to, it's 55 pound load capacity. Um, but, uh, let me see if I've got the weight here. Yeah. 4.5 pounds. So radians, uh, that that's the latest thing you've come out with. And so radians like the subs, is it a subsidiary company of OPT or is it its own thing? Uh, it's its own thing. So it, okay. we, yeah, we, it's people at OPT designing a lot of this stuff, but uh -huh. it is, it is being sold to other places. Oh, okay. So you guys are like, this is like a spinoff company. What, uh, anything you can share with us that might be in the future or yeah, is there anything, yeah. nothing you want to talk about? No, we got a bunch of stuff, man. We got a bunch of stuff. We have telescopes coming out shortly. I was going to the, yeah, I was going to get yeah. to that. Cause yeah. it sounded like you were just doing accessories, but the telescopes are in the works. No, the telescopes, all of this led there. So each time we have the meetings for the radiant stuff, it always goes to what are the problems that you're experiencing? You know, what are the problems? What are the things that need to be solved? And uh, the mount conversation comes up a lot. The telescope conversation, the camera conversation. Uh, we have not developed any cameras. I have started work on a couple different mounts, uh, but the telescopes will be the next big thing that people see. Um, and we have telescopes on both sides. So we have professional telescopes, literally all the way up to 24 inch, uh, reflectors, um, CDKs, like, uh, you know, brands that you've seen all the other brands that sell CDKs. Mm -hmm. Um, so same, same optical designs and, um, you, you know, the radian, like I said, we wouldn't release it if we didn't feel like we were solving some problems. Um, and then refractors, same way. And all of this stuff is for imaging. So it's not like these would not be the right. And we're not even going to tell people like this is not the scope to buy if you're wanting to do visual astronomy. Not that there's anything wrong with it, but it's just like driving a Ferrari to grocery store. Sure, sure. You can do it. It's... It'll get you there. <laughs> a bit overkill, though. Yeah, but it's <laughs> and like. And where are you going to put your groceries? <laughs> yeah, there's an extreme level of overkill. <laughs> It'll get you there quick, but where are you going to put your milk? Yeah. Yeah. All right. I get it. Yeah. Okay. Well, so lots going on and this company's or sounds like it's pretty new. How long has it been going? How long has it been around? Uh, we started working on these two years ago, but product development takes a long time. Yeah. Um, a very long time. And we, so we just, I was showing people CDKs. I got my first, uh, CDKs. We have 10 inch CDKs in the observatories right now that I've been letting people use. So, uh, that one's called the Nomad. It's a really small uh, CDK, 35 pounds. Think about that. Like everything is so lightweighted that you have a 10 inch CDK that weighs 35 pounds. So you can use it on the mount you already have more than likely. Um, but we put one in the observatory. We've been letting everybody test it. And that's one of the big things is like, don't hide it. Don't make a product and hide it. If it's great, put it out there and say, here it is. Let everybody see it. You know, let everybody try it. Let everybody watch it actually pull data in. If it's great, don't hide it. And uh, we've been doing that, been running it live on the Twitch stream, letting everybody see the data. And it's uh, it's incredible, man. It really is. But there were just a few small cosmetic things about it that I just wasn't in love with. So 
it goes through rounds of prototyping. It's in its last round of prototyping, um, but it should be out very, very soon. Like uh, got an idea. Can you be more specific or just like, uh, leave it sure, at that? sure. Yeah. So the biggest thing is like, I need them to give me the thing that's dependent on is I always want to see one uh, that's perfect before I say, okay, this is, this is ready. And so if everything comes back on the next one, that's ready, I would imagine that we'll have at least within the next, let's say 60 to 90 days. I think that you'll see three different, maybe four, probably four different telescopes out from Radian that have all like, they're right there in that last stage within the next 90 days. Awesome, man. That's exciting. Well, we'll keep you guys posted on that, how it goes, because uh, those are going to be some cool telescopes to get for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, well, since this is a gear episode and I want to just, we're, we're, we'll probably do, I imagine, as the as the holiday season gets closer, we'll probably do more gear episodes to help with this kind of thing. But with an eye toward people who are looking to maybe get into the hobby or buy gifts for someone else, what are you most excited about? What's kind of taken off right now in terms of uh, most hot products or the most uh, interesting sales that you've got going on right now? Uh, Sure. Yeah, there's a bunch of stuff. It's actually, you know, we've been very busy. We're so fortunate in that, um, you know, the industry as a whole, I think, is something that's been growing. You know, the Comet obviously helps, which we should talk about, by the way. Yeah, yeah. um, I was going to bring that up right after this. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, you know the there's kind of like two different paths that people probably three different paths that people take. I really love. I know it, it gets a lot of hate. I really love the Stellina type telescopes. Yeah, me um, too. the fully automated, no learning curve stuff. Now we carry Unistellar, so you'll see Unistellar in stock uh, as of today, actually. So by the time this is released, uh, hopefully they're still in stock. That kind of stuff sells fast, but I know yeah, we got a EV bunch scope, of those. In. Yeah. The EV scope is there. So those are for the, especially for the price point, uh, three grand, four grand to have the camera, the mount, the tracking, full automation, all of it done for you to where it's one button and you're up and running, man. I, I love that stuff. I think it's amazing. And literally anyone can do it. Um, yeah, so we those talked are, about this on the podcast a lot. Those, those those telescopes are real game changers. I still have my EV scope. They're they've just let me keep it for a while. I'm really I'm really happy with it. It's uh, I had to give the Selena back right really quick, but the EV scope I'm still using, so I'm really happy with it. Mm-hmm. So then I'm, the I'm uh, on, on the on the visual side, one that a lot of people have been doing is the uh, like the Mead Star Navigator. You know, people ask all the time, "What can I get for five hundred bucks or under?" If it's for visual and you want to see the moon and the planets, stuff like that, uh, Mead makes one called the Star Navigator that we have uh, a bunch of coming in all the time. It's probably become the most popular of like the the you know starter visual scopes. And so for yeah, under five hundred bucks, man, I think that's a great great option for people getting into it. That's the visual side. That's not an imaging scope. You could do like iPhone stuff on it, but really nothing else. And then on the imaging side, I mean, the the world has just exploded in favor of astrophotography. Um, yeah. You know, everybody's taking pictures now, whether it's DSLR or CMOS or CCD stuff, cool stuff anyway. Um, and, you know, I think that people getting in are generally getting in at the... Um, the mounts that are like the, you know, under a thousand dollar price point, like Celestron makes the AVX. That's super popular. Um, Skywatcher has a great one called the EQ6R that's tremendously popular. And then people are getting more and more into the buy the mount once and be done with it stuff like Hobum. 
Hobel Observatory. I mean, they make the, the uh, 170 and the Traveler. That Traveler weighs like six pounds total and can fit in a camera bag and bring it anywhere. Um, fits on the Radiant Tripod. Man, people are bringing those things up mountains and stuff. It's crazy. I think that's really smart uh, because the mount, the mounts you could soak. I mean, literally, it's you could spend all your money on different kinds of mounts. But if you did this, one of those things where if you just decide you're going to get the best right away uh, and never worry about it again uh, that you end up, I would have argued saving money in the long run, right? Because you do. you're not, you're not getting this mount that, well, it's a little underpowered. This is, this one's a little bit yeah, shaky yeah. with this optical tube assembly. So you get something a little bit beefier and the next thing you know, you've got a room full of mounts. Uh, it's, so. it's hard. It's hard to do, but if you can talk yourself into that route, you do save yourself a ton of time and money over time, but more than anything else, you save yourself frustration. Because you just buy a mount that's just going to work, and it's going to work every time you turn it on. Yep, exactly. And and uh, a lot of manufacturers are starting to realize this. I think they 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 make the best that, that can be made for whatever price point, and um, they they end up lasting a heck of a lot longer than some of the entry level models you might see that would be, uh, you know, sort of sub five hundred or whatever. Uh, these would definitely be something you can grow into. So mm-hmm. that's something I'm excited about seeing as well. I mean, I'm a big fan of, you know, Yeti coolers. I love these coolers. I live in Florida. I, it's important to keep things cold. Those Yeti coolers cost like $300 for the smaller ones. But dude, I mean, in the long run, they, 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 I'm never going to buy another cooler again, right? Because yeah, it's one exactly. of the best. It's, it's engineered in the best way possible. So, yeah. Um, I, I definitely believe in that philosophy. Just like buy once, cry once. Yeah. Just get it, get it <laughs> That's right. A good way to put it, <laughs> the first time, you know. And it's like if you know that you're getting the thing that is going to last forever, then it's like you check that off the list. You're not going to be back doing this in two or three months, saying like, "Well, what's the next step up?" And then what's the next step up? It's like, yeah, you're already done with that piece, you know. Yeah, the only the only time that makes sense, I think, is when you're not sure about your passion. Well, it, by, that by definition isn't a passion if you're not sure. But, but it, you know, if you're not sure this is something you want to get into, right. then maybe it doesn't make sense to, like, you know, get the best of the best right right away. Uh, you want to experiment, get something a little more affordable, and, uh, and, and dive in that way. So that's about the only time I can think of where. I always just tell people, like, use, use the, like, if it's photography, use a little tracking head like the Skywatcher um, Star Adventurer. Yeah. Or yeah, the Ioptron Sky Guider Pro. Just use those little things, and then you don't have a huge learning curve. You just throw a camera on it, and you're taking long exposures. Done. Yeah. Done. You know, and it's under 500 bucks. Same thing. Yeah, and you you'll know wanna... right away if this exactly. is something for you after doing that. Exactly. And same thing with visual. Just buy a little, you know, Star Navigator for under 500 bucks. And then if you just can't get enough of it, then you know, like, hey, this is going to be my thing. Then that's when you really go in and you say, all right, I want to get the right kit. And I can't tell you how many times that happens on a daily basis, man. We Every day we get those calls. It's like, man, I'm in. I'm never going to get this out of my blood. What do I need? You know? Yeah. Wow, man. I don't, I don't know, man. It's been a while since you and I have talked, but, but every... And I, and I kind of need it because, you know, when it goes, my energy level gets kind of low, but just spending some time with you, man, it's like, I'm already kind of jazzed up now and I'm really, you know, <laughs> my energy level's already gone up. I've needed this. So what we, we got, we can't end this episode without talking about the comet that's come by. So you want to, you want to say, have you seen it? Have you imaged it? Comet Neowise is, is, was gracing us with uh, its presence in the early dawn hours and now. We can see it in the uh, early dusk, and it's just um, to the 
west of the Big Dipper, or at least uh, in the early evening, uh, right before, I say, 9 o'clock Eastern time. So, yeah, if you haven't got it. And last night it was at its closest. And um, I got a peek at it, but um, that's all I've, that's all I've had time for. I haven't really seen it. So what have you, have you seen it, uh, yes, Dustin? I went, out, uh, I went out two nights ago with Travis Burke and Ian, and we all set it up. Travis just made the post today, actually, about it. Oh. And, uh, you know, accidentally posted one of the Radian prototype scopes. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah. So there, that went out to a million people. But <laughs> it's Travis. He can get away with it. Yeah. Um, and plus, it looks so badass that I'm fine with it. Um, <laughs> yeah, but anyway... Uh, yeah, so we went out and I've, I've shot it a couple times with people just helping them get photos. It's not, I haven't done really much myself with it. I helped him, so I'll probably process that data up. But, you know, I've been uh, really testing other things on like Milky Way, but it, it's really cool to see. And the comments are funny, man. I've getting so many comments about like people, hey, uh, is this thing really going to crash into us? It's like, yeah, that's. Oh, I know. That's why they changed the name to Comet Apophis. <laughs> yes dude it's heading our way <laughs> it's coming yeah google apophis that's what this thing really is they're just not telling you <laughs> yeah. yeah don't do that that was that'll that'll, that'll start a hysteria <laughs> oh man i knew it i knew it comment i apophis, told you man yeah nasa's hiding it from us it was and we came out anyway i knew it i knew it yeah 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 well, it's funny man there's a lot of those messages right now now, the reason you're seeing it in the early evening uh, hours and before, and, uh, a few weeks ago it was in the early dawn hours is that it is on its way toward the sun. And so it's going to be in the area of the sky that the sun is. And so we can't see it obviously during the day, but when the sun goes below the horizon, it gets dark enough that you can see these things. And that's also why we can see Mercury and Venus in the same time period uh, in the evening skies. That's why we never see Venus really, you know, it's like, like a midnight or something because it's toward the sun and you have to have mm -hmm. the sun in that direction to be able to see it. So, um, and Venus was, was, was visible very high in the spring, the, uh, winter and, and early spring months. So it was the highest I had ever seen it. So it was amazing right. to have time to see Venus as well. So comet Neowise folks, you can still see it. I think for a few more days, um, it was at its closest and brightest to us last night. Um, but that is, all I know, I, I have to go. You can go on Sky and Telescope. It's, or it's bright. Yeah, you get to a, a dark sky, even a relatively dark sky. Look for the Big Dipper. Look just below it. And it's very obvious that it's mm -hmm. there. It's not something that's like, oh, I wonder if I'm going to be able to see it. Like, no, it's there. It's there. And if you go out with binoculars and you look around under the Big Dipper, you're going to find it. And uh, it's really impressive. It's it's something that is worth taking the time to go see. Definitely. I mean, it's yeah. amazing. It Always. really is. And, it's amazing. And before we go, uh, give people some imaging tips. What's the best way to image a comet? Comets are comets are a challenge. So it's bright. It's very bright. So it's not a challenge to find it and uh, take a picture of it. What's a challenge is the processing. If you're going to stack a bunch of photos, because it's moving at a different rate than the stars behind it. And um, so, so you get you star know, trails. If you center on the comet itself, you get star trails behind yeah, exactly. it, right? Exactly. Yeah. It's really, uh, it can be a bit of a challenge, but I know if you just, uh, there's so many people doing it right now that there are a ton of videos on how to do it and, uh, help out there in just about every program on how to get it done, but it's worth shooting. And if you're going to shoot it, I mean, what we were doing was we were just using a regular, um, mirrorless camera and, uh, the telescope, and we were shooting it at about 700 millimeters of focal length 
on a uh, APS-C, so a crop sensor, and it filled the frame perfectly. And uh, yeah, I mean, we were doing like the ISO, I think was 1600, so nothing crazy. And the exposures were really short. I mean, they were not long exposures at all. I think 20 seconds. And man, I mean, it turned out beautifully. You can see Travis's photo, but it turned out beautifully. And you can get a lot of a lot of stuff, a lot of uh, imaging done very short in a very short time period because, you know, it's only up for a few hours. Right. So you, you can and get it. And there's a lot of sky background as well because of the, yeah. the dusk. Uh, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So it's definitely worth shooting. So when you take a whole bunch of short exposure images and stack them later on, um, do you get in the end result? So let's say you do, I don't know, uh, two dozen 20 second exposures, whatever you're doing. Do you in the end get a higher contrast uh, image? Like, could you see more detail in, in a, in a lot of short exposure photos uh, or would you, are you better off doing fewer longer exposure photos? Yeah. Well, what happened? What happens is you, you know, you, you start to see that you can push the image a lot further when you're stacking because, you know, you're bringing the noise down so much by stacking that you can push the, uh, the dynamic range. You know, you can really start to kind of compress that image and get all the contrast you want without breaking the image apart or stretch it as far as you want without really breaking it apart. In a single image, you have almost no room to work, you know. And so it's like that there's no substitute for just putting time on target in that way. Um, but it doesn't, it doesn't have to be crazy. And even if you just get out to look at it right now, you don't have to image it. Just get out That's to look at it. That's what I do. Man, it's worth it. And it, I mean, I've seen so many, um, you know, shooting stars right now. So, you know, a ton, a ton of meteors. Um, yeah, there's a meteor shower out now. What which one is it? I'm I can't remember. It's actually really funny, man. We were delirious. It was probably four o'clock in the morning. I was out at Landers, uh, getting one of helping someone else run the uh, run exposures on the comet, and oh, man, I was already so tired. And this uh, Mac Murdoch, you know, from our team, he walks right. up and he's just like he sees me staring up, watching all the meteors go over, and he's like, "What are you doing?" And I just said, "Man." The dinosaurs had such a terrible concept of space. <laughs> he was like, dude, he's like, I know you're exhausted right now, but that's the best quote of all time, looking at meteors. <laughs> and then I went to bed. The dinosaurs sucked, man. Yeah. <laughs> they had no idea. Yeah. yeah. Well, they're dead now, so <laughs> that serves them right. <laughs> serves them right. Oh, serves them right. Dumbass. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Dumbass. Dinosaurs. Uh, they were terrible at astrophotography. Yeah, they they didn't they couldn't even work the focusers, man. They were I no know. good at all. Uh, well, all right, okay. Well, I guess we'll 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 cut the episode there. Unless there's anything more you want to say, Dustin. You got no, else no. I'm glad we're doing right. these again, and uh, yeah, me too. Glad, glad we're back into it. We're back into Twitch on Clear Skies Network. Yep. Um. So I'm not doing it on Gibson Picks anymore. So for the, that's anyone right. here that's looking for it on Gibson Picks, you won't find it. It is all on Twitch.tv forward slash Clear Skies Network, all one word. Yep, and I'll be picking up again uh, sometime this week as well. I'm not sure yet what time, but I'll be back streaming on that as well. So, yeah, uh, definitely good. We'll be we'll, we're back in the saddle on the uh, podcast, folks. So thank you for being patient uh, on our brief hiatus. We are back and uh, hopefully better than ever. So, on behalf of Dustin Gibson, I want to thank you all so much for listening. And as always, keep looking up. 
Space Junk is produced by Deep Astronomy and sponsored by OPT Telescopes in Carlsbad, California. Please visit our website at spacejunkpodcast.com. Also, please send any questions and comments or ideas for new episodes to spacejunk at deepastronomy.com.